You know, it's not the same old funky New York that it used to be. No, it's not, is it? Once they started oh. putting those Nike stores and M&Ms. Oh, yeah, and no, I know. It's Times Square. I mean, yeah. I liked it during the period where they said, you know, Prez to City, drop dead. I, <laughs> I have, I have, um, I have a scarf, um, you know, uh, uh, one of those designer scarves, and it has headlines from the New York Post on it, and it has um, headless body found in topless bar. New <laughs> <laughs> York Post headline. Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. So uh, we are contemporaries, and I am very jealous of you because you're a pioneer in the sense of being a legend of a woman, mm-hmm. a woman comedy writer. And you currently teach as well, right? Are you teaching in California? Yeah, that's what I'm mainly doing now. I mean, I have a few projects that I'm trying to get off the ground in the, you know, in the cotton fields of show business. (laughs) (laughs) I would that concept, tote that proposal. Um, But but I'm mainly teaching and um, I'm teaching at Chapman which is in Orange County. Um, So I'm actually kind of relieved to be teaching over Zoom because I don't have to get up early and fight traffic to Orange County to teach. I mean, I sort of miss seeing people in person, but I found that since they're small classes of 12 to 14 people, they're like writing workshop classes. It isn't too difficult to do the classes on Zoom and in some ways creates a kind of intimacy as I guess you found in your work. Yes. That is, you know, that's a plus you uh, there's down there's a downside and then the, there's a plus side and and the plus side is that it can sort of create an intimacy which is what I strive for is to uh, create the atmosphere of a writer's room you know without the stale sandwiches and, <laughs> <laughs> and, now, uh, I, and paper cups um, yeah. but but to have that feeling of kind of community where people are talking about each other's work and contributing to each other's work. And um, I've been teaching there for over 10 years, I guess. And so, before that I taught, I taught at USC, I taught at UCLA, I taught in uh, Northern California at a place called Academy of uh, Art, Academy of Art University in, in San Francisco, where someone was trying very hard to start a TV and film writing program, but unfortunately, um, unfortunately, he died, um, and that and everything sort of fell apart after that. Um, so I haven't been teaching there um, because uh, he got um, uh, pancreatic cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. That's he died very, very quickly. Yeah, my, so, my mother had that actually. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah. so that was too bad. But I mean, I, it was also stressful because I'm, I'm raising my daughter who is now perfectly capable of taking care of herself. She's 18 now and, and she's going to UCLA. But at the time, my adopted daughter, she, at the time she was quite young and I had to fly up in the morning, teach my class and then fly back that night. So it was kind of stressful. I mean, it was fun in some ways, but, you know, but I would just sort of get a lingering glimpse of San Francisco and wish that I could spend time and then have to leave. Such a beautiful city. Now, I also understand that you taught at the Vancouver Film School. Yes, I did. A friend of mine um, uh, is like the head of it, I guess. And um, I, he invited me up there and it it was... um, American Thanksgiving, but of course they don't celebrate that in Canada. So it worked out well for me because I was on a break and they weren't. And I went up there and I, but I mean, I just did a short program. I, I, I also was invited to um, uh, UNC in North Carolina in um, uh, what to call it. Uh, they said it's like the blue spot in the center of the red state in North Carolina. Um, and I was invited there and I taught there for, I did like a three day program there. Was it Asheville? I started was in Toronto. Now this is interesting to me. You were from Buffalo, New York. But not really from in the sense, I mean, that I left there at six months old. I was born there. Oh, where did you grow up? Uh, on the East coast, up and down the Eastern seaboard. Um, were you a sailor? What? Were you a sailor? No, no, I wish, but no, my father, it was kind of like being an army brat in a way. My father had a job tutoring this kid. He had been a private school teacher. My father was born in India, he was British. And he and my mother came to the US from Canada, which is where they met. And they came to the US and then my father was teaching at various private schools and ultimately ended up at a school in Buffalo. Thus, I was born in Buffalo, but this very wealthy woman uh, offered him a job tutoring her son, who was kind of a problem kid, and with the promise that at the end of it, she would help him to start his own school. And so he was teaching this kid, and they went back and forth between Greenwich and So as a child, we spent the summers in Greenwich, Connecticut, and the winters in Palm Beach. And, you know, they rented houses for us, but they would be different houses. And well, that's not we'd, too shabby. Go on the train, that's- we'd go down on the train, you know, it's like a, a romette on the train, which I loved. I mean, <laughs> and, um, and I remember that one time we, there were like, there was like circus cars on the train because the circus used to winter in Sarasota, Florida and uh, Ringling Brothers Circus. There used to be two traveling circuses, Barnum and Bailey and Ringling Brothers. And then they merge. And then now the circus is kind of not such a thing uh, because of animal cruelty and all that. But they had to have a special car for the fat lady. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, built to her specification so that she would fit in it. It's funny. Well, I certainly enjoy going. We have the Ringling School of Art here in, in Sarasota now. Right. Um, 
and uh, it's a great school. But I wanted to ask you about your education then. So your dad was a very learned person. What was your mother like? My mother was very bright too. And, 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 and in fact, my mother and father homeschooled me until I was in third grade, basically. I went to Palm Beach private school at one point. Um, and it was very frustrating because I already knew how to read. You know, I was reading Alice in Wonderland. I learned to read very early. My mother always said I learned to read in self-defense because um, everyone in the family was always reading. So I needed to have my own book. So I learned to read and, um, you know, I was in first grade and they were going like C spot run. (laughs) And so they decided that I would just help this is obviously a, a real mistake in terms of the formation of my character because uh, the kindergarten teacher whom I adored said, all right, well, why don't you just help me with the kindergartners? <laughs> so that's what I did. And then my mother was teaching me and my sister, my older sister. I have an older sister and a younger brother. There's seven years between each of us. And, um, so she was teaching her from the Calvert School, correspondence school. And so she was teaching me and I also would sort of sit in on my sister's lessons. Um, so then when we moved, we moved to um, Millbrook, New York. My know it well. Teaching. Unfortunately, the woman who had promised him his school and everything died suddenly of a heart attack. And, um, at, and she was, you know, only like 40 in her forties or something, but she was obese and she died of a heart attack and he had no recourse. So at that point we went to, um, we went to Palm beach and I went to Palm beach private school there and he taught in the school. And then we moved back to the East coast to first Highland, New York, and then Millbrook, New York. Um, because my father got a job with IBM. And so he, in those days, computers were like giant rooms. Right, right. And so I remember he showed them to me. I remember him taking me and showing me like the computer room. And so when IBM sold computers to a company, they would send someone with the computers to teach the people in the company how to use them. So my father's job was teaching those people teaching techniques. So he was basically teaching the teachers to teach, as it were. And Millbrook was the place I lived the longest. We were there for five years. And then he was transferred to White Plains. And we moved to Somers, New York. Wow. So you had a little varied childhood. and Like an army brat, as I said. I was just moving around all the time. But the, the love of reading was instilled so early. I was very fortunate, too. I got read to a lot, and I was able to read at an early age. But you, that love of reading was instilled in you. And I did your parents well, have good sense? My centers? parents read aloud to us all the time when we were kids. My mother read us all the little house books. My father was reading uh, the Jungle Book and different things to us. And he actually read Shakespeare plays to us at one point, taking wow. all the parts the comedies. Now, did they have good senses of humor? Your parents, were they? I think that they really appreciated a joke. Um, 
my father was a big fan of Martin and Lewis and my mother couldn't stand them. But, <laughs> but, but um, you know, uh, I've been asked, you know, when did you first realize that you could be funny or whatever? Um, and there were two instances. One was an accident, which was when we were living in Greenwich at the movies there was a newsreel and I said, piped up and I was probably, I don't know, three or something like that. And I go, Oh, there's that SOB Truman. <laughs> because I thought it was his name. Right. <laughs> I had never heard my father refer to him any other way. <laughs> and so, and it was mainly, you know, Greenwich, it was a Republican audience. So there was a lot of laughter in the audience. And I was like, Oh, and then later in another, <laughs> when I was older, we went, when we were by then living in Millbrook, we went to see a movie called Wagons West, where they were, you know, it was a wagon train and there was all this drama. And um, at one point, this woman is giving birth on the wagon train. And I piped up, quick, fetch the boiling water. <laughs> and everyone cracked up, right? And I thought, ha ha. <laughs> That is great. So I wanted to ask you this. I appreciated the response. And that started me on the path. That first laugh you got. It's like me yeah, with improv. Once laugh, I got yeah, that first laugh. It certainly does. So did you watch much television? Because as I said, no. the contemporaries. And I remember the comedies of the 50s because it was one of my babysitters. And the portrayal of women like My Little Margie. And no, I, I didn't watch television at all, really. Wow. We didn't own a television until we got to Millbrook. And then we had a television, but had like rabbit ears and tinfoil. We could really only bring in one station. And what I remember watching on television at that time was I watched Queen for a Day, which I <laughs> adored. <laughs> I know. I kept, I kept asking my, we were kind of middle class. I kept saying to my mother, why don't you go on that show? I know. Show? It was why really not? amazing. The, the sob stories, right? I mean, it was an early version of reality television. Right. And then I would watch, I watched um, uh, the Loretta Young show. Yes. Yes. And uh, I think there was some kind of half hour matinee theater, matinee theater. I watched that. And then my father and I watched quiz shows together. Wow. You know, and my father would try to guess the answers ahead of people. Um, but not those sitcom shows because I think they were on channels that we didn't get. <laughs> <laughs> you probably spared I a lot. I remember seeing a bit of Father Knows Best, but not, you know, not uh, consistently. And so when I got to Saturday night, taking a big jump, but when I got to Saturday night, it was interesting because most of the people that I was working with, the other writers were more literate in television than I was because I really hadn't watched a tremendous yeah. amount of television. Yeah. And, you know, when I was in college, um, I, I, got some jobs as an advertising copywriter and mm -hmm. I didn't have a television. And so I remember going for this job and they said, well, you know, we don't know. You have these writing samples. I had writing samples from the college newspaper and from my first job in advertising, which was writing um, 
newspaper ads for a kind of upscale department store in Montreal called Holt Renfrew, which is sort of like, you know, the 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 Bendels or something of of uh, of Canada, and uh, so I had those samples of writing, and they said, well, but you know could you write television commercials? And uh, I said, well, yeah, I could try. They said, well, can you write us a sample one? So I, they had a Jell-O pudding and pie filling they represented. So I wrote a commercial for Jell-O pudding and gave it to them. And it was basically the commercial that they had on the air. Wow. And wow. So <laughs> how, and how old were you then? Well, that was when I was like, what, 17, something like that, 16, 17. And because I started college at 15. And um, oh my gosh, you know, skipped grades in school and all that. So, you know, I guess they, I had already told them I didn't own a television. So they knew that I, you know, was doing this spontaneously because I had never seen their commercial. And so then I got a job working there at McKim, McKim, uh, which became McKim Benton and Bowles in Toronto. So now when you, did you start writing as a young child or as a teenager? What, what? I was always, I was always reading. And then I was always also always writing. And I actually got like a little tiny printing press for, I, I don't know which birthday it was, maybe my 10th birthday or something like that. And, um, yeah, because my brother was little, so it was probably, it was probably my 10th birthday. And it was one of those presses, you know, where you put the type in with tweezers and then you could roll it. And, and <laughs> I, I put out a, a newspaper called the Beats Home News. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, I tried, I was writing as a kid, but, you know, I wasn't in a family that encouraged it that much. Um, I was doing things like writing, uh, you know, changing the lyrics of music that I heard or um, cutting out pictures from magazines and writing satirical stories about my teachers, which once got caught by my French teacher and I got in a lot of trouble. But um, that's my story. Well, (laughs) well, when I was when I was in high school, then I ended up um, I, I was after my experience of being homeschooled then going to the local public school, being quite unhappy there. My parents actually started a school that still exists in Melbourne. It's, um, it's, it used to be called the Dutchess County day school. And I think now it's just called the Dutchess school because they have borders. Um, But they and some other parents got together and started a school. And so I went there, but it was tiny. It was like there were three kids in my class. And then there were more kids, you know, as down, you went down to kindergarten, of course, because people were putting their kids into the school. So their classes were larger. The younger you went, the larger they were. Yeah. But I was in the like first class. So when I went there, I went there for fourth, fifth and uh, sixth grade, sixth and seventh grade. Yeah. Now, when you were still young, is that when you got into James Thurber and Dorothy Park? Oh, yeah, that was when I was reading James Thurber and, um, and uh, you know, reading The New Yorker and all that Our stuff. Too. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get McGill is such a great school. How did you end up at McGill? And you were only well, 15 or something? 
Well, it was actually a horrible school for uh, someone who was taking English. <laughs> great school if you want to be in pre-med. Oh, okay. But, you know, it is kind of like the Harvard of Canada or whatever. But um, I, well, I skipped grades because after I had gone to this private, small private school in Millbrook, I was completing seventh grade. And then I went, no, wait, I was completing seventh grade. And then I went right from there into ninth grade in the school in uh, Somers, in the public school. And that was sort of what my show Square Pegs was based on, that I was this 12-year-old in ninth grade. That was a great show, by the way. Not everybody knows that you wrote Square Pegs and yeah, also in the world. Yeah. And um, so, so that was my painful high school years. And I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. And my mother, meanwhile, my parents split up. My mother decided oh. that she wanted to move back to Montreal. She was English Canadian from Montreal. And she decided that she wanted to move back there. And so she sort of engineered it that I was able to complete high school in three years. Because I had always been taking like an extra class instead of study hall. So I had a lot of credits. So I ended up finishing high school in three years and graduating at 15. Jeez, wheeze. You know, I, I was an English major in my undergrad. and But my best English teacher was Mrs. Hamilton. I went to a girls' school in New Jersey. And Mrs. Oh, really? Rose what Hamilton. was the name of it? The Kimberly School for Girls. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we went to dances at Choate and Lawrenceville and all that prep school stuff. Mm -hmm. But this Mrs. Hamilton, the English class was so superior to anything I ever took when I was an English major in college. I was so gifted in that, you know, to really. Well, you know, I just felt that I had to struggle to keep college English from ruining English literature for me. <laughs> Now, I also read, thank Wikipedia or someplace, that you got into the Jewish writers at that time. I did. And you then I, and I got into my Jewish boyfriend and I converted to Judaism. That's it. Who was your Jewish boyfriend? Uh, he was a guy named Herbie Aronoff. And he, there was no secular marriage in Quebec. You had to be married by, you know, a a rabbi or there was a, there was a Unitarian minister, I think that married people. But other than that, you couldn't have a civil ceremony because the church had a big grip on the province of Quebec at that time and the Catholic church. And so, and also his mother was, you know, not accepting of a shiksa. Of course. So the I went through the, the whole. My favorite process. line is, I'm sorry. The shiks is baking a apple pie. Yes, right, right. <laughs> I know that was lines. Woman, yes. Was that your line? No, it was hers. Okay. It was all her. Okay. It was a monologue that she created. Um, but, but no. So anyway, so I also, as I said, you know, I admired Jewish writers like Bruce J. Friedman and so on at the time, and later met him, and he became a friend. Wow. Late Bruce J. Friedman. He was actually a great guy. Um, but, you know, so that was J.D. Salinger, all these people, you know. So the black humorists, as it were. And so I um, 
just um, felt like, okay, I want to belong to something because I also had never been in any organized religion. Hmm. As my parents were very bohemian and, um, <laughs> you know, agnostic. Right, right. They both came from like a Church of England background, but they didn't really observe anything. Although we did celebrate holidays fanatically, like Christmas and Easter. And <laughs> um, so anyway, and my sister and I used to put on nativity plays where we'd make the dog be a donkey. <laughs> um, but, and my sister would produce the baby Jesus from under her skirt, you know, her <laughs> nightgown really, because we had these <laughs> white <laughs> nightgowns that we used to wear. Um, but so anyway, um, I did go through the whole conversion process, but I always say that I, that I won the mother, but lost the son (laughs) 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 because ultimately we did not stay together. But, but at the time when we were together, he got a job in Toronto and that's why I wanted to go to Toronto and work in advertising. (laughs) But then you met somebody that helped you get to New York or had you met? The one of the Michaels that got you to New York, or well, Michelle Chiquette got me to New York. But okay. prior to that, I was in England. Oh, I didn't know that. Because Herbie and I went, still unmarried, went to Europe and hitchhiked around, and I ended up. We ended up back in London. I mean, we were in Paris. We were in Paris in '68. You know, at the time of the. Danny LaRouge and all that, the, the, the French, uh, revol- second French revolution. revolution. Yeah. That's what it yeah. was. Um, but we ended up back in London and then, um, I got a job in advertising and Herbie had got some different jobs, but he was not happy and he decided he wanted to go back to Canada and I did not want to go back to Canada. And so I said, well, I'm going to stay in London. And I, and I did, and I worked in advertising there uh, for a year and, uh, you know, was swinging London. My, my skirts were like blouses, really, my dresses. Right, Mary Kwan and all that. see my underwear all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and did you visit the West End very much or were you kind of a struggling? Uh, uh, well, I ended up uh, getting into a relationship with an actor named Peter Kastner who was there doing a film. He actually was in Francis Coppola's uh, first uh, movie that was his student film, which was called, uh, what was it called? Was I think it was called You're a Big Boy Now. Anyway, so Peter Kastner, who was Canadian, and I met him in London where he was working on a called The Ugliest Girl in Town a forerunner to that show, you know, where they pretended to be girls in order to be in an apartment. And what, he, for some reason, just, was supposed to be pretending to be girls. Cool. We, ju- we just had a Zoom loss. I lost. Oh, all right. So anyway, he was in this TV show called The Ugliest Girl in Town that they were filming in England. And so we ended up in a relationship. And since he was making TV money, we went out to fancy restaurants and we went to see as many plays as possible. So I did actually get to see, I saw hair and I saw, um, I'm trying to remember different things, but like whatever was on, we would go and see. 
I was I was living in Manhattan when hair came out, so I saw it with meatloaf in it. Wow. And then so, I got to see I, this is about you, but I'll just share one more thing. No, I no, what? I, I saw Equus and um it was Anthony Perkins. Burton was out. Oh, and it was Lord. Anthony Perkins and Equus. It was so brilliant. And really? then I saw chorus line a lot. <laughs> uh well, I never saw chorus line actually, but but I remember seeing uh Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. In, in London. In London. With Peter and various, you know, we went to all different productions of things and we went to the movies, you know, we went to see Oliver. I remember it had just come out, you know, those big movies that they used to have that had an intermission. Right, right, right. Great movies back then, absolutely. Yeah. And the experimental films like Blow Up and all of that, you know. The right, Blow Up, right. yes. Um, so, so anyway, uh, then Herbie came to visit and proposed to me again. And I decided that I would, we went to Paris for the weekend or whatever. And, you know, April in Paris, chestnuts and blossom. On the bank <laughs> and proposed again. And I said, okay, and I'll come back to Montreal. And so I did. And then when I got back to Montreal and I was in the house that Herbie had been living in, I kept finding these long blonde hairs everywhere. And at the time I was a brunette mm -hmm. and it turned out that he had been in a relationship with someone, which, you know, sauce for the goose, but it was still kind of ongoing. Oh. And so he ended up breaking up with me and leaving me <laughs> in Montreal with no job, no money, and nowhere to live. <gasps> so that wow. was a difficult period. I bet. And when I first started psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so uh, anyway, um, I lived in a succession of, you know, borrowed apartments where I was cat sitting and that kind of thing for a while. And then finally, I ended up with a roommate who's still a friend of mine today. She's now living in New York. My friend Lita and I sharing an apartment. And that's when I got fixed up on a blind date by my former coworker, Sean Kelly, who, who wound up at the Lampoon. He fixed me up with Michelle Chiquette. And Michelle and Sean were working together on things for this magazine that these two Harvard guys were starting in New York. And Michelle brought me to New York and to his five flight walk up on St. Mark's place. It had a sign in the lobby that said vomit outside, not in here. Right. <laughs> which had been written by the janitor. <laughs> and, uh, so in a railroad flat was $75 a month. Right, right. Michelle couldn't make the rent. He would pawn the television, uh, <laughs> which was a black and white television. Right, of course. Um, yes. And um, so that's how I came to the Lampoon. And what a, what a magazine that was. And you were one of the first women to work. I was the first female contributing editor and first and only at the time because they could never have more than one at a time. Oh, you're right. Well, the Tolerate times are changing. One at a time. Now, I, I don't know if everybody in my listening audience, I, I was 
with a group of people recently who didn't know who Jerry Garcia was. So that's the danger <laughs> of hanging out with young people. But yes. the, how would you describe National Lampoon? Because it was a favorite of mine during those years. That and Firesign Theater. Oh, um, yeah. Firesign Theater. I remember listening to Firesign Theater with Michael Adonio. Um, well, it was a boys. I mean, it was just a total boys. And, and it was white mainly waspy, some Irish uh, boys who, you know, basically I think Henry Beard and Doug Kenny thought that women were like a different species, like horses or something. Like, what do women eat? You know, they didn't <laughs> have any comprehension. And uh, so... It was also a magazine that was put out by a very small number of people. Like most of the articles were written by the same like five or six people. Right. Um, and, you know, it was very um, incestuous. It was very chauvinistic, misogynistic. Today we would say that. Racist. Um, racist. Did they pay you the same as they paid the men? They paid me the same, but they didn't pay me, you know, uh, on a regular basis. In other words, I had to sell what I wrote to them. Huh. I, I, I didn't have a salary. I was a contributing editor, but I was paid by the piece. And it was very frustrating trying to get paid because you had to have a check request and had to be signed by Maddie and by the bookkeeper, Maddie Simmons. The guy was the publisher. And, you know, something was always the other person who had to sign the check would be in the hospital with a broken wrist or something. <laughs> it was just really hard to get money out of them. I mean, and I remember saying to Maddie once, you know, could he sign my check request? And he's, he was like, why do you need money? I just gave your boyfriend a thousand dollars. So that would give you an idea of what the atmosphere was in terms of sexism and and you were the editor. Well, I was a contributing editor. Contributing I was a, editor, a okay. list of contributing editors who were people who were not actually on salary at the magazine. And yeah. the people who were on salary were only like Henry and Doug, Michael, Tony Hendra, PJ O'Rourke at one point, wow. and Brian Honicky at one point. And, and who that else? Was kind of it. And then everyone else was just paid by the piece. Okay, so there's a picture behind your screen right now. Yeah, is this is a picture. Lampoon. That yeah. is a picture of Saturday Night. Oh, Saturday Night Live. Live. Yeah, okay. that was Saturday Night Live winning our second Emmy. Wow, what a great. Well, I recognize a lot of faces. Yes, I recognize everybody now. Are you in that picture? Yeah, I'm over behind Michael, the, the guy with the dark glasses, I'm behind that with my perm, you can see. Oh, I, I love that perm. And is that Al Franken up there? Al Franken is next to me with his own natural perm. Yes, and he Tom is. Davis, and then uh, Jim Downey, Alan Zweibel, Bill Murray, uh, Rosie Schuster is there. Yep. And then that's um, Tom Schiller, uh, Michael O'Donoghue and Marilyn Suzanne Miller. It's beautiful. That was your first Emmy, huh? 
No, uh, that was our second Emmy. Oh, second Emmy. Okay. Well, that was our second Emmy. I'll get a screenshot of that maybe. Uh, so, um, well, I could send you the picture if you want. Oh, that would be nice. Oh, well, lovely. Thank you. Um, so how long were you with Lampoon? And then because National Lampoon started making movies, were you still with them when they were doing that? No. no. Well, or National Lampoon of, well no, we weren't. Um, what happened was um, I worked on the magazine for for the four for about four years, I guess. And um, then Michael started the lemmings was happening and it was a whole complicated thing with people with feuds and stuff. And Michael and Tony Hendra, who just passed away recently, mm-hmm. were having a feud. And so Tony and Sean were doing lemmings. And so in response, uh, uh, Maddie decided that Michael should do the radio hour. Mm-hmm. So he did the national lampoon radio hour. And I worked on that because I was upset with my relationship with the magazine. I I had asked Henry to lunch and uh, Henry Beard and I had lunch and uh, he said to me, I just don't think chicks are funny. So I, I should have like slapped him, but instead I cried and I lost my contact lens. Oh, in the- oh. And- oh. <laughs> for the magazine again after that so I worked on the radio hour because by then I had switched boyfriends in mid magazine and it hooked up with Michael Donahue rather than Michelle okay and so uh and so Michael was running the radio hour and you know I was living with him so it was pretty easy for me to get him to do my stuff and that's where Bill and, and Gilda were on the yeah, that, they were that on radio and, show. Yeah. Yes, they were on the radio hour. And and then what happened is that Michael and I left under a big there was a big hoo-ha and and Michael quit. And so then John Belushi, who had been doing bits on the radio hour, ended up taking over and running the radio hour. And was he? He was more grounded back in those days. He. Oh was, yeah, he was. He was, he was. He was. It was sort of pre-cocaine era. I think mostly people were just smoking a lot of grass, and uh, Belushi was was actually, you know, he was. Uh, if you see the documentary on him, you'll realize that he was more of an intellect than people gave him credit. Yes. Yes. And you were good friends with his wife as well, weren't you? Well, I was good friends with him at that time. And he and and Judy used to come over and John would come over and visit us. And Judy was still working at the magazine. She was she was working in the art department at the magazine because when Maddie wanted John to come from Chicago to be in Lemmings, he said, I need a job for my wife. So Maddie said, or for my girlfriend at that time, she was his girlfriend. Okay, and he hired her to be in the art department. So she was working. So in the afternoons when she was working, he would come over and drop in on us and didn't talk much, but he would do impressions of people, which he was, of course, great at. And uh, that was was how, um, that was our relationship with John. and, And he was very sweet, really, and friendly. And, 
you know, it was interesting because when we wanted Lauren to hire him for SNL, you know, we were lobbying for Lauren, Michael and I were lobbying for Lauren to hire him. And uh, he ended up, Lauren said, well, you know, I don't know. I think he's trouble. And we were like, what? Belushi? He's a pussycat. Are you kidding? Trouble? He's no trouble. <laughs> there you go. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so when we left the Lampoon, which you can hear the story of in the Lampoon documentary, but yeah. it was a big hoo-ha where I came in, it was Easter Sunday, Bob Tischler and Michael were finishing up the radio hour to be sent out and my desk had been given away. I had a desk there on that floor and I came and I found that Michael Simmons, Maddie's son, had his stuff in my desk. And I got really upset and I said, this is not right. And I want you to remove all my pieces from the radio hour which would have meant they would have been there all night, right? So Michael was pissed off and he called Maddie up at home and they got into an argument and 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 um, Maddie said, you know, if your girlfriend doesn't like it, she can quit. And if you don't like it, you can quit too. And Michael said, I quit. <laughs> and I was like, ah, because we had to pay a big $675 a month rent on our apartment. And I didn't know how we were going to do Ooh. that. Quit. Yeah. So, so because how much time he left? Said he brought home the bread and I brought home the rolls. So. <laughs> well, so how much time elapsed before you were uh, employed again? A year. A whole year. Mm-hmm. Wow. A year. So we were scrounging. You were? Yeah, scrounging and doing anything I could think of to make money and writing for We Magazine because another contributor to the Lampoon Terry Catchpole was an editor of We Magazine. And so he started giving me work because I couldn't really, you know, go out and sell myself to good housekeeping or whatever on the basis of my Lampoon piece. <laughs> Now, during that time, I was living in Manhattan, too, at the same time. Did you ever go to Max's Kansas City and those places? Oh, yeah. We went to Max's. <laughs> <laughs> but Max's had sort of, by the time we went to Max's, I went to Max's, I think, first with Michelle. And then I did go to Max's with Michael. And I think we went and heard Patty Smith, actually. But, mm -hmm. um, but uh, we lived on 16th Street between 5th and 6th. Yep, I know it well. 23 Very well. 16th Street and um, in a floor through Brownstone um, for six seventy five a month. Wow. Yeah. I lived right around the corner on Mercer Street at one point. Right. So anyway, you know, so we, we were downtown people mainly. CBGBs? Um, yeah. CBGBs. I lost a scarf at CBGBs on there. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, and also, um, you know, uh, all of those places that were around there. And, you know, some of them are still there. Like, and actually, we sort of gave the McNally Brothers a big boost because when we started at Saturday night and people were looking for a place to go for the after party, we wanted to go to 1-5th because it was close yep. to 
Yep. This I had my you wedding. Didn't go I had my town. So it turned out that everybody would go to one fifth, and one fifth became very chic as a result. Patty Smith lived upstairs, and that's where I had my wedding reception. Patty Smith one fifth years. Oh, one fifth. Yeah, it was delightful, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was wonderful. Well, we actually had. I still have two chairs that came from the Coronial. <laughs> That's great. That's and wonderful. An ice Beautiful. <laughs> an ice bucket. <laughs> yes. Um, I had them reupholstered, but I have them. Um, so, yeah, one of those ice buckets with penguins on it. Um, Oh, and nice. Yeah. So anyway, uh, after we we left the lampoon, um, then it was like, what you know, what are we going to do, kind of? And we did various weird things, like write this English version of a m- cartoon movie called Tarzoon: Shame of the Jungle, mm-hmm. being done by a Belgian cartoonist named Pisha who had also contributed to the Lampoon and friends of his. And I like translated the script into English and then we rewrote it and then they translated it back into French. And apparently it was a big hit in France, but I I didn't care for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we just did whatever we could do. And then Lauren Michaels came calling. Another Canadian. I had sold a book. I'm sorry. Who? What? So I'm sorry. I interrupted. I have sold a book. Okay. Because my friend Deanne Stillman, who I met at a ladies' lunch, came and said, "Why don't we do a magazine? You know, a women's humor magazine." And I said, "Well, you know, I don't think we can really get the funds together to do a magazine because you have to be, you basically, will have to be in the red for the first year, and we can't manage that. But what if we did a book?" So that's how Titters, the first collection of humor by women came to be. And so we had just sold this book. So when ultimately when Lauren offered me the job on SNL, I turned it down (laughs) and said I couldn't do it because I was doing a book. And he just basically lied to me and said, oh, you know, you can do the book in your spare time. And, you know, what, what spare time? You never had any spare time. but. So he, he, you know, and then a friend of mine who was also involved with the book and it helped us sell the book said, you know, it's an offer you can't refuse and you have to do this. And luckily I, I said, yes. Okay. But I want to say Titters is a great book. Is this still available on Amazon? I think it might be available on eBay. eBay. Okay. Great book. Of course I had it. We had did that. And then we later did Titters 101 which was a literary version where we did parodies of various people like Emily Dickinson and so on. Right. <laughs> um, but so anyway, uh, so that first year of SNL, you know, I was basically stretched very, very thin. You know, was it anything like Tina Fey's show 30 Rock? Did you relate to that at all or not? It was. It wasn't really. Okay. I mean. I guess the sort of writer's room part of, of, of 30 rock was, was accurate to it, but you know, um, more about the personal lives than it was about how the show actually got put on. 
it never really showed you any of the show. It would show you. Right, snippets. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think the sort of craziness and pressure of 30 Rock was accurate. But, you know, basically it was like we were given this great sandbox to play in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. We, yeah. And that was the fun of it. I mean, the real fun of it was saying, okay, you know, I need a kitchen set. And then there would, there would be a kitchen. it was like it was like grown-up play in a way oh that's so much fun although it was really hard work but I mean what was what was great about it was that you could bring your visions to life as it were so did you actually work all night sometimes and always Always. So what days would you start? I mean, well, how would you have a break? Always, I mean, at first we came in more in the afternoon. Then we started coming in later and later on Mondays and come in on Mondays. And initially there was a thing on Mondays where people would come in and watch the show from the, from the Saturday before. Um, but that didn't keep going, I guess, because people got VCRs and they didn't need to do that because this was before VCRs when it started. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, we would have a writer's meeting with Lauren and usually with the host on Monday night and then pitch ideas. And Lauren would put little cards up on his board and, uh, <laughs> and then we would go out and eat and then we would come back on Tuesday, you know, sometime in the afternoon and start writing and we would basically be up all night Tuesdays and you'd be writing as a group I mean you'd just be pitching ideas no no we wouldn't be writing as a group I mean it changed I think where there came to be group rewrites and stuff but when we initially were doing it it was sort of every man for himself or woman for himself and what would happen would you would be formed you would you would collaborate with some people on different things like like Danny and I wrote those um, Irwin Mainway sketches, like um, you know, unsafe Halloween costumes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or unsafe. A bag, think, of gla- bag of glass. Bag of glass. That was Christmas. <laughs> Christmas toys. It was a bag of glass. It's a big bag. Kids love it. They love it. And so Dan and I wrote those together. But mainly I worked with Rosie Schuster because Uh we sort of banded together for protection in a way. Yeah. And I ended up forming a writing partnership with her that produced, I think, some of the better stuff that we did, like Uncle Roy, which you never see anymore. Right. Of course not. And um, Buck Buck Henry. Yes. With Buck Henry. The late Buck Henry. Um, And and. the nerds pieces. Oh yeah. Bill and, and Gilda. Gilda. Oh yeah. And that arose out of, well, it arose out of my seeing Elvis Costello and saying it wasn't punk rock. It was nerd rock because you know, <laughs> had the high water pants and right, right, right. all that. And so, <laughs> so we did a piece nerd rock and we wanted it to be, John and Gilda and Bill was going to play his DJ character and John wouldn't do it. So we slotted Bill in instead. And then Danny played the DJ 
and uh and um it was a it was you know just a stroke of luck because Gilda and Bill fell into those roles perfectly and I think I read somewhere they were a couple at one point wasn't they she were a couple with for him? a long yeah. time on yeah. and off they were yeah. a couple and and Bill used to call Gilda like and leave a message saying that Todd called. <laughs> oh, so, so they so, really identified with those parts, you know, which was sort of a microcosm of their relationship, a little bit sadomasochistic. Yeah. yeah. Because Bill had this longtime girlfriend and we ended up marrying and then divorcing. But he had this longtime girlfriend that was sort of always in the background and, and, you know, she would show up at the show and things like that. And Gilda would be all upset, mm. but you could always tell if they were together or not together because in the read through, if they were together, Gilda would laugh, especially loudly at Bill's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then you knew they were back on, but that went on forever. So uh, what a beautiful spirit. Um, a friend of mine had a birthday. We were donating to Gilda's Club, which is such a wonderful organization. Right, right? yes. Just, you know, throwing herself against the wall. I mean, everything she yeah, did. Yeah, she did. She did. And she would do anything for a laugh, basically. And I mean, I remember that she said once that, you know, it's like comedy is when you fall on the ice and make it, try to make it look like you did it on purpose. <laughs> So, um, the, in the, the very first show of Saturday Night Live, wasn't that George Carlin or am I it wrong? It was George Carlin. George Carlin. And it was a big controversy with George Carlin because the network wanted him to cut his hair. Wow, they did. They wanted him to cut God. his hair near his suit. <laughs> and the compromise that was achieved was that he put his hair back right, like right. a man ponytail and he wore a suit jacket over a T-shirt. I bet he was fun. I just imagine him being fun. Well, I don't know. I didn't really have much contact with him, but I just remember all of that going on, the arguing about that, <laughs> that being a crisis. So how many years were you with him? On Saturday night? Yeah. Five years. Wow. Those are the golden yeah. years, in my opinion. I mean, I actually, when I give, sometimes I give workshops on different aspects of mental health, and I frequently show clips from Saturday Night Live. Uh, really? There's no yeah, there's no copyright involved. Don't tell anybody I did that, Anne, okay? Um, no, no, no. But, I, I, would I, would, never. I would talk about therapists, you know, how therapists are portrayed in, in, um, in the movies. And I would show that Elliot Gould clip where John is playing the Godfather. Oh, that one. And what about the other one where, where Gilda is a child psychiatrist? I don't know if I've seen that. Never seen that? No. I don't know if they show it because Gilda plays sort of an autistic character and Lorraine is a child psychiatrist because <laughs> who better can understand the mind of a child than another child? Because <laughs> so Lorraine, Lorraine and I came up with this. Rosie and I wrote the piece, but Lorraine and I came up with it because she had this character that she used to do, which is sort of like an, a Shirley Temple-ish character that she did. Yeah. And I thought, what could we do with this character? It would be fun to put her in the role of a sort of authority figure where she's, you know, you know, laying down the truth or whatever to people. And so we had, it ended up being on the Kate Jackson show and Kate and Bill were the parents. And then Gilda was like her Colleen character, which was basically an autistic girl. And she just, she, 
she just went like, and she didn't talk at all. And, and when Lorraine asked her to bring her something to represent herself, she brought her a stapler. <laughs> I don't know if it's politically correct to laugh at that still, but I work with kids on the spectrum, so I'm laughing. Well, um, I mean, it yeah. was very funny. And then Lorraine and Lorraine was on the desk and then she's sort of sitting cross-legged on the top of her desk. And then at one point after they, they say, oh, thank you, doctor, you've made a breakthrough or whatever, and they leave. Um, and Gilda, you know, bangs into the wall and, <laughs> and they leave. And then Lorraine is like pressing a button and saying, you know, to her assistant, you know, Miss Stevens or whatever it was, I need to go to the potty. I need to go potty right now. <laughs> it's coming out. Well, that's before the PC police tightened everything. Right. Up. So I don't know if they show that, you know, they don't show that anymore. And they don't show Uncle Roy. And we also did a character with a, and we also did a piece with the Colleen character where it was um, Christina Crawford's Christmas. And she played Christina Crawford and, and Jane played Joan Crawford. <laughs> See, I find that stuff funny still, but... Um, well, so, why not? It is funny. I mean, the thing is, is funny. Michael O'Donoghue was sort of a mentor to me. And, and uh, you know, he used to say, if you can't laugh at death, what can you laugh at? Exactly. Exactly. So I remember sort of feeling that nothing was sacred and nothing was out of bounds to do. Now, you know? do you think that the way that Garrett... Which was also Moore's- the Lampoon had that same... Had yes. that same... The Lampoon had that same attitude. You need to be able to laugh about everything. That's where gallows humor comes from anyway, from. Right, people. exactly. And, and, and I felt, I've always felt that nothing is sacred. Um, I remember the lampoon issue, is nothing sacred. There was an is nothing sacred issue, and it was the Che Guevara poster, but with a pie. Um, and I did a piece for that, which was about the noble savage, and it was sort of a mockery of the, worship of native americans and uh actually i got a call from people at the smithsonian who wanted to know if ann Beats was a pseudonym because they thought that it had been written by somebody who was in that field because the research was very accurate that's great i love that, that story accurate. that's wonderful but, you know i I've, I've always felt that you know you can take on any target and the you know it, it, Paul Krasner, another person that I always admired, the editor of The Realist, said um, that, you know, the humorous job is to point out that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. Right. Absolutely. Here you are. So why, you know, where, I'm, I, I don't, I mean, not that I particularly want humor to be hurtful, but I feel like that you should be able to, if, if you, you know, the main thing is if you're going to take on suspect targets like that you need to do it well right right well that's the difference yeah i um you know i remember when the first show when the show first came on i had i was actually living on like 21st street and going to a neighborhood bar and uh talking about the show the next day and sometimes staying there and that was a cool thing you know when when you would if you managed to get out of the house you know on sundays uh, you would hear people in the next booth, you know, talking about yeah. the sh- what you had done. 
And that was very satisfying because other than working on a daily newspaper, you don't really get that kind of opportunity in show business to have that instantaneous reaction. So wonderful. So wonderful. And at the bar I used to hang out with, it was an Irish bar where they, they threw a lot of darts. And uh, I don't know if you remember those kind of bars. Or yes. Beers and shots and darts. And one of the fellows was a tech on the show. And I was always too scared to say, could I get a pass somehow? Oh, could you come? Could and you I, get tickets? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I could get tickets somehow. So I always kick myself for that. But it's been part of my life. I mean, for such a length of Well, I think for a lot of people, it, it was something that they grew up with or had as integrated into their lives, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I still run across that, you know, that people, <laughs> I remember I met somebody who said that he used to go around with friends and perform in his, in his middle school, used to perform sketches, like before they had the start of school, they would go to classrooms and do sketches from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Including Fred Garvin, male prostitute, which I thought was really bizarre. <laughs> what middle school? <laughs> did he go to but apparently they did that of course when he told me that it just made me feel really old oh so at some point in time you, you had a baby or you adopted a child rather you adopted it i did no? not have a baby i tried to have a baby i tried i mean i'd always thought that i would have kids or a kid and i i and i um you know i uh thought I would end up with somebody and I would have a kid, right? But then as I was in my late 30s, I realized that this was not happening. So I went through fertility stuff for five years. Wow. And I used up all my Writers Guild insurance, which was very generous towards that at the time. <laughs> and I ended up, you know, where I had to give myself like, shots yeah and yeah. which I thought I could never do but by the end I was able to like sort of you know be like giving myself a shot in the butt and going hold on a second <laughs> <laughs> luckily I was never that good at giving shots or was afraid of, sh of needles when I was in the drug world because I never got involved with anything that had required needles um but you know, afterwards when I was doing fertility stuff, I was like, okay, fine. I'll be able, you know, I could do it in a gas station restroom. Um, but I went through like a, not in vitro, but where they, <laughs> they actually use these words, they harvest your eggs. Right. Right. And yeah. Put them back into your fallopian tubes and hope that they'll like have a party in your pants, but nothing happened. So, uh, I had to kind of give up at that point. So then I took a few years to mourn the fact that I was not going to be able to have a child. And I ended up on the adoption route and I adopted out of foster care. Good for you. So that took a while. I mean, about probably the same length of time as it would take if you were trying to adopt from China or someplace like that. Um, because I had to take lessons, mm -hmm. none of which were extremely useful. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but I did like 40 hours of, you know, training. 
And then you had to basically open up your life and have everything examined uh, to qualify. And then once I was established that I could be a foster parent, I was waiting for a kid. And that took a while and a few missteps along the way where they would like they were say, oh, there's this kid. And then the grandmother would show up or, oh, this is kid and she had stunt in her head which I did not want. And I just said, I don't, I want a girl. And I, and I birthed to three and I don't care about the rest of it, you know, what color or whatever they are. And I ended up with my daughter who's wonderful and, you know, we're a great match actually. I mean, we've been quarantined together for a year Wow. So the fact that we haven't killed each other during that time. That's, that's that says something. Teenager, yeah. That's, how, old quite something. how old is she now? How old is she now? She's 18. 18. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, she's that's like wonderful. 18 and a half. And she's um, half African-American and half Mexican-American. She must be beautiful. And actually, we found out, we did that 23andMe thing. We found out that she has a teeny bit Jewish and a teeny bit Filipino which pleased my Filipino. I have Filipino relatives. They were very pleased. Mm-hmm. And well, it's like a tiny percent. And um, that her, she's also quite a bit Native American. Well, I'm sure she's helpful beautiful. with college entry. <laughs> I bet it was. I bet it was. Well, yeah, because we definitely stress that. Has she, she hasn't been to college yet, though, or did she start? And have oh, she summer? did one term of it, and then she decided to take a term off, and now she's going back in March because it was very hard for her. It was very hard for her to just do Zoom classes where there's 350 people. Yeah. And, difficult. you know, just adjusting to that, and it was not what she had hoped, and I think she was very disappointed. and. So it was very difficult. So now she's going to have to go back into that, but hopefully then, you know, things will open up maybe by the fall. Now coming so full circle. A real college experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love mine. Drug, sex and rock and roll. But you know, that was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> she's miss, missing out on all of that because, you know, she's just isolated. So, so coming full circle to college and, t- and, t- and your teaching, do you have to be enrolled at that college to take your classes? Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. So well, not teaching? in the summer. You can take the summer class, I think, without being enrolled. But in, but in the regular term, you have to be enrolled. Yeah. Now, I met you through uh, Sean Mulville's film, Act Social. And yes. was about improvisational comedy, but I, I I didn't quite know how you actually fit in because you don't have. Well, any- I don't really because I've never <laughs> been. I mean, uh, Sean, I I had Sean in one of my private classes, which I was doing before I started teaching at Chapman, oh, okay. or or actually I was teaching at USC, but before that I was teaching just privately. And I and I would advertise, and um, I, I said it was Saturday Night Live and five easy lessons. And someone said, "Well, you lied about the easy." <laughs> but I would I would teach classes where I got people to come and you know pay me, and then we would do like uh, f- five weeks of classes and put on a show. 
at the end. And uh, so Sean was part of that. So that's how I met him originally. And so he was like my student, right? I have not really spent time in the world of improv because everything that we did on SNL was writing based. I mean, it might've started in improv, like for instance, Lorraine having this character that she did, the little girl character. But then, you know, once we ran with it, it was all written down. And well, so many of them, otherwise, I mean, right. But, but you know, so many of them think were- that Saturday Night Live could be made up as it went along, but no, because then the camera would have been in the wrong place. You know, right, exactly. But so many of them were improvisers from Second City, Toronto and Second City, Chicago. So they really came from there. That's what made them so great. I mean, that they were so great and that they were able to handle so many different things because they had the improv background. But it it was, you know, sketches could arise out of improvisation. But then once you had that. You know, then you had to make sure Absolutely, that it was written yeah. down and 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 pretty much you know set in stone because you had to camera block it. Right, exactly. So I think so when people little, started throwing in lines, they wouldn't be on camera. Right. You know. Right. Now you need those little blue tape on the floor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that that makes it more rigid and and doesn't at all. It, you know, it it was more of a writer's medium. So you so do that was what different about it. I'm sorry. Do you still write every day? Are you a daily writer? What What's your practice like now? It's not good. (laughs) Because I'm not really writing. And I feel the pressure of it. Because I would like to, I started working on a book, but I haven't really gotten that far with it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, I put a lot of my creativity into my classes, which is satisfying in a way, but it's their work, not my work in the end. But um, I do have a, a, a couple of projects with a with a friend and writing partner. Eve Branstein and I are actually hoping to sell a show about the early days of the Lampoon called Funny Boys. That would be great. That would be great. Sort of, I always say it's it's like a little bit, it's on Madison Avenue, but it's to the left of Mad Men. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought, for some reason, I thought that the first office was down in, in the, uh, not even in Soho, down in the Wall Street area that was full of lofts at one point. Well, there, were, there were these guys that uh, worked uh, uh, on the art, uh, art direction that had a loft that was downtown. Um, But the offices of the Lampoon were in the same office as the Weight Watchers office, um, which is where Maddie Simmons was operating out of. And they were on the, in the vision building on Madison Avenue and 58th street. Funny. That's funny. Cause we always call the vision building because it was in the middle of what was the eyeglass district. Oh, that's funny. That's fake. Because I remember like, seeing a lot of optometrists and stuff around there uh, at that time. Anyway, yeah. now probably not, but then. Well, you I know, remember the way seeing... was in the garment district and the, right, and right, the right, diamond right. district and so on. We, my first husband and I, almost bought a loft 
right near where that lampoon office was. Cause I remember going by and saying, Oh, this is going to be a fun neighborhood. Um, but, uh-huh. <laughs> but, but I mean, and then a friend of mine, Kenny Nitell had a loft on, what was it? Lexington and 22nd or something like that, that, that we did, you know, that he did a lot of artwork for the magazine and, and so on, but but the but where the hangout place was was on Madison Avenue. Yeah, in I, used there, I used to be there late at night, and I used to go home by myself in the subway to St. Mark's Place, and uh, and you know I can remember walking on down to St. Mark's Place and people going you know like Reds, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, offering you drugs, you know. But one thing about it is I felt sort of safe there rather than when I was going on those long, lonely blocks down to the six um, because there were always people around at any hour of the day or night. I need to ask you a question. A good friend of mine who actually worked with Jim Hansen on the Muffets lived on St. Mark's Place. And across across the street from her was a flower dealer. Do you remember the uh-huh. flower dealer on St. Mark's Place? It was I on- don't remember the flower dealer, but I remember the pizza place on the corner where I used yeah, to get slices yeah. for like 25 cents. And on oh, Electric and, Circus was on that block too. At yes, one Electric point. Circus. And Michael O'Donoghue had worked at the Electric Circus. But we were on the we were at 30 St. Mark's on the opposite side of the street. And I think Abby Hoffman had lived at 28. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And there were also the the men's baths. Right, 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 right. Yeah. We're there. So a different time, a different era. Yeah. yeah. Um, but listen, I love talking. I could just talk to you forever. Um Oh, just, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's we've taken up a lot of your time. Well, you no, you gave me a lot of your time, Anne. I'm just saying I'm so grateful. And I want and eventually I'd love to take a class with you because I know I'd learn a lot. I write here and there. Um Mostly, uh-huh. mostly there, uh, occasionally here. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, you really are a national treasure, and I, I just am so appreciative. And I hope we can stay in touch. And um, oh, absolutely! Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott. <laughs>